Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 28th chapter of 1 Chronicles. That's uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in the clean part of your Bible. Not to be confused with the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Uh, It's no secret, I'm sure, that I love the Old Testament, not only because of the stories there, but because the same truths that are that we're confronted with over and over again in the New Testament are given to us there in novel ways, ways perhaps that we've not seen them before. Someone has said, if you aim at nothing, that's precisely what you'll hit. There's a wealth of wisdom in those words. We uh, want our aim to be certain. Over the past four or five months, your elders have been engaged in a series of discussions. We've been meeting, some of us have been meeting for breakfast every Thursday morning for several months, trying to put together a mission statement for this church, giving us some direction, something to aim at, over the next five years, it's not that we have, uh, that this is something brand new, that we've had no purpose in the past, but we wanted to uh, spell it out, codify it for you, embed it in scripture so that you would see that it has biblical authority. It's been a, uh, it's been an interesting process. I think we've all learned a lot as we, uh, have made, have, have made these efforts. The result has been a mission statement which we want to spell out for you over the next uh, seven weeks. It really revolves around two statements. The great commandment, which is to love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And the great commission, going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That simplifies things a great deal. It's our goal to try to keep things very, very simple. And uh, we want to spell that out in a ser- <coughs> pardon me, spell that out in a series of seven specific objectives that we believe will enable us to accomplish the, to the extent that we as human beings can accomplish both the great commandment and the great uh, commission. Now, this text that we're looking at this morning, if you see the title over the top of the page, it says uh, David's plans for the temple. And you may be asking yourself, what on earth does the temple have to do with the church, and specifically with Cole Community Church? Well, it has a lot to do with this church, because the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament era is a direct analog of the temple in the Old Testament. When we talk about the church today, we're not talking about buildings, programs, people, leadership, when I think of people, we're really talking about the people of God filled and flooded with God and indwelt by Him. You are the temple that God is building today. You recall Jesus' words to the woman at the well. Her concern was with where God ought to be worshipped. Should we worship Him here, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had a temple? Or should we worship Him in Jerusalem? where the Jews had their temple. Jesus said, it really doesn't matter where you worship God. What matters is that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. That we worship Him in our spirits and in reality. 
The temple in the Old Testament is a symbol of a greater reality in the New Testament. That is, the people of God indwelt by the Spirit of God, worshiping God, wherever they are. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul makes that statement in 1 Corinthians 3. You, using a plural, referring to the church in Corinth, you are the temple of the living God. He also uses that term of individuals. You, in your body, are temples of the living God. People ask me, they come to look at our building and they don't see a sanctuary as such, and they say, where is your sanctuary? And I say, well, every Sunday morning our sanctuaries come, and they sit in the gym, and uh, <laughs> and uh, that we gather on that basis. So you're all sanctuaries in that in that biblical sense. But the church gathered corporately is also a sanctuary, and that's what we are this morning. You are the temple of the living God. So the question is, how do we build this temple? And how do we maintain it? So the principles that I find in 1 Corinthians 28, I think, find their analogy in the building and maintenance of this uh, body of, uh, of believers. Now, uh, David is the author of these uh, words. Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles, I believe, but he had uh, in front of him verbatim reports of uh, David's charge to the leadership of Judah and to his son Solomon, and that's what's what's reported here. Uh, David had his rough age, edges, as you well know. He's capable of any sin and culpable of most of them. Uh, he frequently gave way to uh, passion, precipitous passion, and uh, even that more deadly device, uh, deliberate evil. We, we've been looking at First Samuel uh, before the uh, end of the year. Uh, actually before we studied First Timothy. And you saw something of, of the struggle that David had being the kind of man that God wanted him to be. But the thing about David that we saw, both in his actions and his psalms, which reflect his inner the inner man, is that he was obsessed with the love of God. He was a man who sought God with all of his heart, and all of his soul, all of his mind. He says in one of his psalms, this one thing I desire above all else that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to to focus on the beauty of the Lord so so he puts it in that in that psalm he had this great great heart for God and, and desire to follow him and despite all of his flaws and failures and foibles he was a man with a with a heart uh, for God he longed after God and uh, that longing is seen in his uh, preoccupation with the ark. The ark, as you know, is this little wooden box about the size of a footlocker. Uh, had a few things within, but basically it was there as a symbol of the presence of God. David knew better than to believe that God dwelt in that box or on that box. It was simply a symbol of his presence in the middle of the nation. And one of the interesting things about David is is that he... He was obsessed with getting that ark up to Jerusalem. We'll talk about that later when we move into Second Samuel and, and look at David's obsession with the ark. There's a phrase in Chronicles, almost a throwaway line. We're inclined to read right across it and miss the significance of it. After David conquered Jerusalem, that was his first act after he became king. He drove the Jebusites from the city of Jerusalem because God had said, that's where I want to place my name. 
His second act was to go down to Kiriath-Jerim and, and, and get the ark. Because, he said, we did not seek it during the days of Saul. Uh, Saul was a secular man. He had no room in his life for God. He didn't care about spiritual things. And so he let the ark rot in a wood down in Kiriath-Jerim. First thing Jesus, uh, first thing David did after he conquered Jerusalem was go down to Kiriath-Jerim and fetch the ark and bring it back up and he put it in a little pup tent in Jerusalem and he, and he led the people in worship there. He acted as priest as well as, as, as king because he saw how important it was to have God at the very center of his nation. And, uh, more than anything else, he wanted to, to build a permanent dwelling place for the ark. Spent most of his reign amassing a fortune in money and material in order to, to build the temple. He invested $129 million of his own private funds in the project. That's how committed to it he was, as, as, as well as, as gathering money from, from the people of Israel. He wanted to build the temple as a place to put the ark, as a symbol of the presence of God in the midst of his people. But it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. David's call was to drive the Philistines from, from the land of Canaan. That, that was what God chose him. To, uh, for, that's the purpose for which God chose him. He's a man of war. And it was left to Solomon, his son, the man of peace, to build the, the, the temple. It must have broken David's heart when he realized that was not his call. I, I suppose if there's anything to be learned from this, it's the principle that we are to do God's work, but we don't have to finish it. In fact, as I thought about it this week, the only person I can think of who ever finished God's work with it was our Lord. I finished the work that you've given me to do. The rest of us are somewhere in the middle of the, of the story. And uh, when David heard he was not to build the ark, it must have crushed him, but, or build the temple, it must have crushed him. But, but uh, he saw that God's purpose was to use his son to implement his dream. And this chapter is the charge that he delivers to the leadership of, of Israel, all Israel, and of his son Solomon. Now, uh, the, it's divided into two sections. The first part from verses 1 through 9 has to do with the leadership. calls, assembles together the political, military, social leaders of the nation, delivers a charge to them, and then he addresses himself specifically to his son Solomon in their presence. Now I want to read the uh, first nine verses. Uh, you'll follow along with me, please. David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem. The officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the brave warriors. Now you can see from this what he's doing. Simply, this is the sum total of leadership in Israel on every level, including these uh, wonderful old uh, mighty warriors who had served with David during his time of exile, uh, tough uh, old men that are described here as, as his mighty men, and all the other brave warriors, rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brothers, probably a reference to his tribal brothers in Judah, and my people, that is all Israel. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name, 
Because you're a warrior. You've shed blood. That, that was God's call. David was chosen to be a warrior. Solomon was chosen to build a house, build a house. Verse 4, Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader, and from the house of Judah he chose my family, and from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he's unswerving and carrying out my commands and laws as is being done at this time. So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to keep... And seek out, literally, uh, the NIV says follow all the commands, but that's their effort to try to combine two uh, two verbs. Be careful to keep and to seek out all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. Now there are two things that are striking to me about this charge to the leaders. One is this whole concept of choice, and I'm not going to elaborate on this today because I want to talk about it later on. It's just this notion that Despite how leaders are chosen, whether elected or appointed, they are in the place of responsibility that they're in because of the call and the choice of God. It's Paul's argument, when, or Peter's argument, when he addresses himself to the to the elders in his uh, little epistle, First Peter, he says, "You're there by the will of God, not to feather your own nest, not to aggrandize yourself, not for personal gain." Not even because you love the sheep, but because God has called and he has chosen you there by his will. The other thing that strikes me about this section is uh, this idea of character. The substance of this charge, if you, if you follow it along carefully, is that leadership is to follow after God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. As the institution, as, as the leadership goes, so goes the institution. The heart and soul of any of, of any assembly of believers is the leadership. Look at uh, verse 8. I charge you in the sight of all Israel, the rest of the nation gathered, uh, perhaps in, rep- in representative form, as, as they listen to David give this charge to the leadership. I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of God, be careful to keep and seek out all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. You understand what he's saying? You men, he says, seek God with all your heart. Acquire everything that God has in mind for you so you can help other people enter into everything that God has for them. Precisely what Paul says in Acts 20 to the elders in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, I think he must have had this passage in mind. 
when he said to them, and now he was leaving, he would never come back to Ephesus. This was a church that he had planted. He had spent a number of years there teaching them. And then he says to them, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those that are sanctified. I'm leaving you with the the God of the word and the word of God, and that's all you need. I'm moving on. Now you enter fully into your inheritance so that others can enter into their inheritance. What I'm saying is, says, go the leaders, the church goes. That's why you need to be praying for the leadership of this church, that they will be godly. That there will be people who, who seek Him out in the Word, who are submissive to His authority, who are willing to follow Him, who are growing in, in understanding of His person and work and His character and who are gaining in, in intimacy, growing in intimacy uh, with Him. That's the key to everything. Paul writes to Timothy, this young man who's charged with immense responsibility. We, we talked about uh, his words to Timothy as when we taught through 1 Timothy. He says to him, Don't let anybody look down on you, but be an example of the believer in word and conversation. That is, in walk, in spirit, faith, purity. Every part of your life should reflect the, the invisible Christ. So important. Character is the without which nothing of the church. Even Jesus said, if I don't do the things that I see the Father doing, don't listen to me. The authority of the leadership is based upon their willingness to, to follow after the Lord. Uh, in, in Matthew 7, when our Lord is, uh, is explaining to, to His listeners how they can distinguish between false prophets and uh, true prophets, He doesn't talk about their doctrine because false prophets can teach truth. Even the demons are orthodox. What He says is this, By their fruit you shall know them. It's the fruit of character. It's what they are. Uh, in, in the pastorals, First Timothy and Titus, when Paul uh, describes the place of leadership in the church, he point, makes it very clear. You don't call people into, into leadership who, who necessarily are adept at business or who have powerful personalities. They're not called on the basis of intellect or education. They're called on the basis of character. That's what they are. Now, my, my plea to you as a congregation is to pray for your leadership that we'll be people of God that will pursue Him with all of our of our heart because that is that's the bottom line that you know what whatever happens to us is going to happen to this body of of believers now uh, uh, David moves on or to deliver his charts to Solomon and he does so under three uh, different divisions. He first talks about the priority that Solomon is to ma- is to maintain, verses nine and ten, and then the plan he's to follow, verses eleven through nineteen, and then fa- finally the power that makes it possible, verses twenty uh, through twenty-one. Let me read uh, verses nine and ten. And you, my son Solomon, 
Now, my text says acknowledge the God of your father, but it's just the Hebrew word for know. Yada, to know. You, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord seeks every heart rather than searches. It's the same word that's translated seek in the next sentence. For the Lord seeks every heart even though he understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Uh, In other words, reject you in terms of your leadership. Uh, Your dynasty will crumble. Your leadership will, will fail. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. You see, he's coming off of this statement to the leadership in general. Leadership must be godly. And then he says to Solomon, Solomon, your first priority is to know God, to plumb the depths of God. See, if people's needs are, are, are profoundly deep, excruciatingly deep. You, you don't learn how to address those needs by, by reading books necessarily and by going to seminars and conferences. You don't even learn through Bible study per se. Deep speaks to deep. As, as the leadership deepens its life, as, as we become more profound in our understanding of God, we're able to speak to the deep needs that, that, that people have. So that's why it's so important to know God. That's, that's the first step in, in any leadership. To know Him and to grow in that knowledge of God and serve Him with wholehearted devotion and and with a willing mind because the Lord is seeking you. See, here it is again, that principle that we've talked about over and and over again. The hungers of our heart to seek God are really initiated by God Himself. As I've said before, the whole Bible is about the loneliness of God. He's seeking us. Dame Julian of Norwich, who's a Christian writer, some centuries ago said, there is about God a property of longing and thirst. He hath longing to have us. The reason we can know Him is because He desperately wants us to know Him. He's not playing hard to get. He's seeking us. We, uh, when our children were small, we used to play this goofy game. It's called sardines. <clears throat> you turn all the lights out, and uh, one person is it. Everybody else goes and hides, and then you try to find that person in the dark. And I used to always hide in a closet. <clears throat> some people would hide on top of the refrigerator, some under the bed, but I'd, I'd get in a, one of the closets way back in the corner. And when our youngest son, who now is a big fellow, but he was about four or five years old back then, uh, when we'd play this game, and, and he, he was always a little bit afraid of the dark, and he'd get anxious while he was looking for us. And so I would make it easy for him to find me. I'd make funny noises, and I would sneeze and cough, and and attract his attention so that he could find me and he'd crawl into the closet with me and we'd kind of snuggle up and we'd giggle and, and everybody else would, would try to find us, you see. And, and, and that's the way our Lord is. He's easy to be found. He's not playing hard to get. He wants to be found. That's why he says seek him. Seek him with all your heart because he's seeking you even though he knows what you're like. You notice how, how David puts it? He knows the mean little urges of your mean little heart. 
He knows all the passions that drive you. He knows the patent facts, the nasty personality, the the uh, flaming temper, the obsessions and compulsions and the problems that you struggle with. He sees your behavior, but he also sees the latent forces. He sees what's going on underneath. He knows about the abuse. He knows about the struggles that you're having, the personal issues that nobody else knows about. He, he sees them all. And he's seeking you. He's seeking you. And that's David's argument to Solomon. Solomon, you're not going to be a perfect man, but God is out seeking you, and so you seek Him with with all of your of your heart. The bottom line, the most essential thing for any leader is godliness. And again, I would ask that you would pray for us as leaders that we would grow in in intimacy with God. Now that's the uh, that's the first priority. The second uh, issue that he takes up with Solomon is the plan itself, the plan that he's to follow. That's verses 11 through 19. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had had put in his mind. I want you to note particularly that phrase, all that the Spirit had put in in his mind. David did not make up the plan. He didn't drop the blueprint. God did. Uh, Essentially, uh, this uh, phrase goes all the way back into Exodus and the plan that was given to Moses of the tabernacle. God drew up the blueprint for the tabernacle and gave it to Moses. God drew up the plan for the temple and gave it to, to David. God drew up the plan for the church and he's given it to us in the New Testament. And uh, that's the plan that they were to follow. And I'm not going to read through the rest of this section because it's typical Semitic uh, over-detail. The point of which is that every aspect of the project has has been included in, in the blueprint. Nothing has been left to chance. Nothing has been left to human effort. This is the grand design for the temple. And uh, as George MacDonald says, the design of God is always other and better than the design of man. We draw up our plans and we miss the point entirely. God draws up his plans and it's right on target. David says to Solomon, verse 19, all this is in writing. Put it down in writing because the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he gave me understanding in all the details of the plan. David did not improvise he received the blueprint from God Himself as it was written out. And this is the plan that He passed on to Solomon. Now, I believe with all my heart that the plan for a church, its growth, its maintenance, is found in the New Testament. Our business is to ransack the New Testament and discover the plan that's been written out by the hand of God. Not to improvise, not to ad hoc our way uh, through church management. Uh, we can certainly read good books on the subject, but uh, the basic text for understanding what a church is all about is the Word of God. It's spelled out there in symbol and in reality, picture and in, and in words. I want to go back to that fundamental uh, uh, statement that I made earlier. There are really two issues at stake here. One is the great commandment and the other is the great commission. 
What God wants for this body of believers is for us to love it with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. And our neighbor is ourself. Isn't that simple? That's what it's all about, is loving God loving people. I mentioned a few weeks ago, a man in my Wednesday morning class walked up to me and said, I finally got it figured out. This whole life is about two things, loving God and loving people. I said, you're absolutely right. The older I get, the simpler things become for me. Uh, these are the thing, this is the thing that I believe ardently. And this is the purpose that we have in mind for this body of believers, that over the years you'll come to love God in a way that you've never loved Him before and love your neighbor in ways that you've never experienced before. Of course, for us as Christians, our love of God is conditioned upon God as we see Him in the face of Jesus, as He's revealed and as He is our Savior and gives us access to, uh, to God. That's what it's all about, loving God, loving people. The second parameter is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every every creature. Our job is to make visible the invisible Christ wherever we go. That's what we're about. Everything else that happens in this church is is to that end. Uh, Years ago, I heard Dr. R.C. Sproul talk about a Montessori school that his child was attending, and he went to a teacher-parent meeting, Headmaster was explaining the various things that went on in the school, and he was saying, and during this hour we learn manual dexterity, and during this hour we learn how to listen, and so forth. And Dr. Sproul went up to him after the class, and he said, tell me, what is the purpose for which all these purposes exist? He just blew the guy away. He never even thought about that. And we, we don't want to be caught in that dilemma. Why do we gather here on Sunday morning? Why do we worship? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we have growth groups? Why do we uh, uh, have a WANA? Why do we have Sunday school classes? Why do we have a women's ministry? Well, it's to the end that you might know God and love Him and make Him known. And and anything that doesn't contribute to that goal needs to be jettisoned. I don't care how precious and treasured and, and venerable it is. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to know God and to love Him and to make Him visible wherever wherever we go. Now, there are a number of objectives that we're going to talk about that are subsumed under those that those purposes. But that is essentially the purpose for which every other purpose exists. And we believe that, that this is, again, not something that we contrive, but it's something that's embedded in, in Scripture. When I teach the interns, uh, every third year I teach a class on principles of ministry, and I always draw three concentric circles on the board. That's how I start the class out. And uh, I point out that the inner circle, like a target, the inner circle is the Word of God. The second circle, principles. The third circle, practice. And I point out that what we want to do is derive our principles from the Word. Principles remain constant. They are the parameters. They're the fixed reference points that never change. Practice varies from place to place, how it's applied uh, will vary from in time, place, and culture, but the principles remain the same. Now that's what we're after in the statement of, of objectives. We want to deal with principles that are, that are derived from, from the Word of God, that Word that is written by the hand of God. Now finally, the power that makes it all possible. Verse, verses 20 and following, David said to Solomon, his son, be strong. Be courageous. Do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Actually, the word for discouraged is the Hebrew word for breaking down. Don't break down. Don't quit. Don't stop. 
For the Lord God, my God, is with you. David is speaking out of his own, his own experience. Uh, his years of kingship, his years being a warrior, the, the period of time that he spent in exile learning of, of God's gracious provision. Don't be discouraged, for the Lord, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. The division of the priests and the Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. The power that makes it possible is God with us. That's that's the tag end of the Great Commission, which, interestingly enough, we don't quote very often. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and lo, I'm with you, even to the end of of the earth. He says, I'll not fail you. Uh, Literally, I will not let you fail. It's a causative stem. I will not permit you to fail. Oh, churches fail. Churches fall apart. Wheels fall off our program. Uh, ministries don't come off the way we would like them to, to, to come off. Sure, there are failures all down the line. But if we understand that the fundamental purpose of the church is holiness, to produce holiness in his people, we will not fail because God is with us in that, in that project. You'll note that this is the passage from which the author of Hebrews takes his statement, uh, he will not fail you or forsake you. Uh, so as he, as he continues, we can say with confidence, I'll not be afraid what anyone can do to me. This is what removes fear uh, from us as we approach this project. This is our comfort. Our hearts may fail, but our one sufficient answer is God himself. He will not fail you or forsake you. Now, I was really struck by verse 21 as I thought about this passage. He says, The divisions of the priests and Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. This is my plea to you this morning as the people of God in this church. Help us. Help us. This cannot be done apart from the support and encouragement of the people of God. Your prayers, your investment of time and and energy. As I work with young pastors, I I become more and more convinced that what kills them off is, is a lack of support. I have never felt that from the congregation here. You are a most loving, supportive assembly. And uh, I just want to encourage you to stay with it, to continue. What I find in so many churches is that the leadership of the church, the elders, are unsupported in the task. Often they're put on pedestals and stranded up there, and and no one prays for them, cares for them, encourages them, and uh, they they shrivel up and die after a while. Picked up this past week a book by Henry Nowen. It's actually a, a, one of his first books entitled Compassion. And uh, there was one paragraph that struck me. Let me read this to you. He says, Many very generous Christians find themselves increasingly tired and dispirited, not so much because the work is hard or the success slight, but because they feel unsupported and left alone. People who say, I wonder if anyone cares what I'm doing. I wonder if my board, my friends, ever think about me, ever pray for me, 
ever consider me are in real spiritual danger. We're able to do many hard things, tolerate many conflicts, overcome many obstacles, and persevere under many pressures. But when we no longer experience ourselves as part of a caring, supporting, praying community, we quickly lose faith. That's because faith in God's compassionate presence can rarely be separated from experiencing God's presence in the community to which we belong. The crisis in the lives of many caring Christians today, he's talking about these pastors in these unsupported situations, the crisis is closely connected with deep feelings of not belonging. Without a sense of being sent by a caring community, a compassionate life cannot last long and quickly degenerates into a life marked by numbness and anger. This is not a psychological observation. This is a theological fact because apart from a vital relationship with a caring community, a vital relationship with Christ is not possible. So what what, what this is basically is a plea to you all to engage with us in the task. We believe God is calling us in this direction. But we need support, we need prayer, we need encouragement. This is the way in which we can accomplish the goals that God has given to us to achieve. I just want to leave you with one final note. The last, uh, the last word that <clears throat> David gives to Solomon, which is a wonderful word of assurance to this young man, is that the officials and all the people will obey your every command. The Hebrew just says they'll be to your words. That is, they'll, they'll follow you. They'll follow you. That's always the question that, that leaders have. Is anybody going to follow us? You know, we can't lead unless people follow. What are the ways to ensure that people will follow? Well, you don't lash people. You never lash people. My goodness, you all get beat up enough in the world without coming to church and getting beat up. There are times that we need to address sin, but we need to comfort you as well. I hope you walk out of these these gatherings comforted rather than feeling that you're feeling more guilty. And 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 you cannot get people to follow by or should not by by manipulating them through guilt or through any other contrivance. The best way to get people to follow is to follow the pattern. What's the pattern? Godly leadership. That's the priority. If the leadership are following hard after God with all their heart and all their soul, and they're following the plan that's laid down in Scripture, and if they believe that power resides not in themselves, but in the God who is with us, then as David says to Solomon, they'll follow. They'll follow. You don't need to worry. There's authority resident in that pattern. Well, I would encourage you to take this uh, chapter home. One of the advantages of expository preaching is that you, you can go back and look at the passage. Now, my thoughts, that, I hope it's not, that, I've, that I have uh, placed upon the text. The text speaks for itself. I would encourage you to go back and, and spend some time thinking about it this week. And next week we're going to plunge into the first of these objectives, which has to do with the prayer life of the church, which we feel is one of the primary objectives that will lead us on to the ultimate purpose of a more godly uh, people. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have uh, given us this pattern to follow and the assurance that um, you will not leave us or forsake us, that we will not fail if we're pursuing the purpose which, for which all other purposes exist. I thank you for this body of believers and the wonderful support that they've provided over the years and their, their willingness to hear what you're saying to them in the word and respond to it. They're, 
their willingness to use their gifts, the encouragement that they provide to the elders. Our prayer would be that this would continue. And we pray for ourselves as leaders, that we would be all that you've called us to be, that we would enter into our full inheritance so that we can lead others into everything that they have coming to them because of our common relationship to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.